don't know any of you who've priced a uh, polo shirt lately, but a Michigan shirt is going to go for like $80, so I don't love me that much. <laughs> okay. It is not unusual to compare yourself to your parents. In my case, I was constantly looking at what my father had done when he was my age. And for instance, my dad bought his first house at the ripe old age of 22. Too loud, too loud? Is that okay? Volume okay? All right. I generally don't work with these. I bought my first house at 26. My dad became a manager at 42 and a director of a Fortune 500 company by the time he hit 52. By the age of 52, I had flamed out of the business world, having no, never proceeded past manager, which I got at the ripe old age of 47. The one that amazed me most was that my dad married my mom at 19. I got married at 39. My dad had three kids by the time he was 24. I had two by the time I was 45. And when I was 19, I wanted to be a rock star and worked at Pizza Hut. <laughs> by the time I was 24, I was still in the Marines. I was in the Marines, but it still had meant you know, I had nothing, any idea what life was really about. So now, in New Testament society at this time, um, it was a patriarchal society, and the reverence being projected to all the older men in the village. There were leaders, heads of families, heads of clans, villages, synagogues, as well as teachers and leaders in the local government. They lived an experienced life, and they passed on this knowledge to the younger people younger men in, the, in that village who will typically defer to their judgment. But still, these younger men were usually ignored when it came to matters of importance due to their inexperience in their youth. This continued until the men hit about the age of 30, and then they were generally accepted as among the village elders. Now, imagine being sent to a church to smooth out the problems of one of the most definitive and vibrant church leaders determined was on the wrong trajectory. You probably have little to no credibility, having only been a believer for just a few years. And being young, you might be viewed as nothing more than an upstart and be told to sit in a corner and be quiet. This is what Timothy may have been dealing with when he was sent to clean up new and established churches in Thessalonica and Ephesus and anywhere else in Asia Minor. In that case, it would take, require a mountain of courage and confidence to pull this off. Now, there were numerous references to Timothy being, um, I don't want to say indecisive, but being intimidated, discouraged, unsure of himself. But Paul was always there to provide him encouragement and guidance and support. Now, when I look at Timothy, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been in his shoes. Thrown into the evangelical fire, being at risk of persecution, violence, even to the point of death. Now, the Bible doesn't say how young Timothy was. I figure he was probably in his mid-20s. But what is fascinating is the responsibility that he was given at such a young age. He was dispatched to Paul, to Thessalonica, to shore up the spiritual health of that church there in an act of encouragement during their time of persecution. Timothy reported back to Paul that everything was fine in 1 Thessalonians 3.2. Then later, he was sent to Ephesus to fix things there. At the same time, 
It didn't show anywhere what Timothy's thoughts were when he was going through this. But Paul nevertheless continued to encourage him and continue to mentor him from his prison in Rome, a pretty hardcore Pauline action if there ever was one. And this is the purpose of 2 Timothy, an exhortation to Timothy to hold fast to the scriptures and teachings and that they are true and dependable. Lord, we thank you for this day and especially for your Son, our Savior. We thank you for people of great courage like Paul and Timothy who laid the foundation of our faith and ask that you give us the peace of mind that comes with knowing you so that we can explain and display our love to those around us who are not believers. We also ask that there are those of us who are unsure or afraid to shore up our spirit, strengthen our conviction, and drive discouragement from our hearts so that we can spread the joy that comes with knowing you and your son. Today, we're talking about 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. Now, this breaks down nicely into three subsections. The first section would be verses 10 through 13, where Paul reminds Timothy that, he, that Timothy had followed him diligently and should be aware of many of Paul's characteristics in regards to his dedication and faith to Christ Jesus. He also addresses the difficulties and the persecutions he faced, as well as pointing out God's commitment to Paul and the likelihood that anyone who follows Christ Jesus can expect a thing. In verses 14-15, Paul also reminds Timothy of his upbringing and the foundations of Timothy's faithfulness to God and the benefits he reaps because of this. In 16 and 17, Paul talks about the holiness of Scripture and its veracity as the perfect tool for bringing others into righteousness. Starting off, 10 through 13, reads as such. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, our persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And like I said, one of the things that amazes me is the amount of punishment Paul took at the hands of those who wished to do away with him. Almost from the moment he was knocked off his donkey on the way to Damascus, he lists a variety of abuses he suffered all the while, enduring with the name of Christ Jesus on his lips. To sum up what he endured, from the time of his first encounter with Jesus on the road, almost into a death, you can look at 2 Corinthians 11, 24, 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food 
in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's pretty hardcore. I mean, that doesn't include his last incarceration or whatever else he may have had to deal with after writing 2 Corinthians. For those of us his age, he is the ultimate Timex timepiece. Takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Now, for those of you who are under the age of 40, I ask you to seek out some of the more senior members of the congregation for an explanation and clarification. And by the way, the reason people receive 39 strokes instead of 40 is because they didn't want to land more strokes than one was called for if someone couldn't count to 40 correctly. Probably a graduate of Ohio State. <laughs> now, question in the back? Good? Okay, good. All right. Now, this to me is one of the greatest pieces of evidence for the existence of Jesus and the reliability of the resurrection story. Now, who in their right mind would want to undergo this kind of pasting and still praise God, acknowledging that the Lord got him through all of these incidents? The interesting thing is, by Paul putting this stuff down and saying that he had suffered all these persecutions, it's not meant to scare Timothy with the possible ways that he could get beat down, but a reminder and a testimony to God's faithfulness. Timothy was a witness to some of these abuses, so this possibility is not new to him, but Paul is encouraging Timothy that the Lord God will be with him always, as promised, regardless of how bleak things may seem. And this can also be a reminder to us, who are believers, that we must expect difficulties to be brought upon us as believers, but also to keep in mind that God will always be with us as well. Now, in verses 14 15 is his appeal to Timothy, and Paul's reminding him of where he came from and who he was. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now here, Paul reminds Timothy that he's on the right path and that he needs to continue on that path. He was initially taught by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, and this foundation stood him well, along with the teachings that came from Paul later, as noted in the first two chapters of 2 Timothy. Now, we know that Timothy was born in Lystra, a small town in the province of Galicia, to a Jewish, Christ-believing mother Eunice and his pagan Greek father. He was raised in the faith by his mother and grandmother, so his education may have been along the lines of the Jewish line. Now, the path for males in the family was quite different from today, and it was very distinctly planned out. Young boys started schooling with the village elders at the age of three, learning the Shema, and by the time they were five, they started to learn to read and write in the local language, whichever that may be, as well as Hebrew. At six, they started learning math, science, and were introduced to the Torah, learning Leviticus and the Mishnah or oral traditions. By 10, which I guess would be Josh's age, they were given over to a professional teacher in the village, and they were learned more of the Torah, the Tanakh, 
as well as the Talmud, which were commentaries on the Mishnah, as well as more about the law, all the while learning their father's trade. By 13, they typically joined the ranks of adult men, having gone through the bar mitzvah ritual, joining the men in the, in the synagogue, where they are now responsible to keeping the Torah and the law. They were also betrothed, later married, all by the age of 20. For those that showed promise, typically by the age of 12, they were moved to larger cities where they began intense education at the hands of the Pharisees in the temple or in the synagogue. Here they studied the Old Testament, philosophy, more about the law, as well as rhetoric until their late teens. And here is where they learned to master the art of writing, and therefore they became scribes. Now, for those who graduated from this advanced education, they were ordained as rabbis, sent back to their villages, where they served their village as a bivocational religious leader, working along with their father's trade. Back to our story. Paul tells Timothy that this foundation will serve him well while he is dealing with the doctrine of the false prophets and the teachers. Referring back to 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul states, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Now, Paul's direction is for Timothy to keep the members of the flock safe and secure in the proper, proper doctrine of salvation through Christ Jesus while living in amongst these wolves in sheep's clothing. Adhering to Scripture as a foundation of knowledge will also help us in so many ways as well. It's good for qualifying believers for leadership, living according to our faith, training children in God's way, and honoring our parents who taught us and raised us in the Scriptures. Earlier, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 1-4, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Also in Proverbs 22, 6 states, Train up a child the way he should go, so that even when he is old, he will not depart from it. In all of this, Paul is expressing to Timothy that his, this education of his and the teachings he received from Paul are not just for their salvation, but also valuable to define all relationships that they have with each other and in every aspect of their society. We'll get back to this in a little bit. In the last section, we're looking at verses 16, 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, when I started Southeastern, one of the first things I learned about Scripture is that there are six options on how the Scripture was developed and recorded, all based on varying degrees of God's input and man's input. These theories are in the full spectrum of man's amount of input relative to God's input. I won't bore you with the theological nerdy details, but the winner of the debate was that God used the Holy Spirit to inspire the author to write down the words God drew them towards. Sometimes this is referred as to the dual authorship of Scripture, but it is definitely shown that God and human author both contributed jointly. 
Now, obviously, Paul's referring to the last option of inspiration. God inspired all of these 30-some authors who wrote these 66 books, fueling the Holy Spirit to guide them to write this message. Therefore, because it is the Word of God, it is divine and pure in its own right, so that by the authority it should be good for any use. Paul, in this case, points to four circumstances where the Holy Word is good for guiding others and keeping them on track with the right doctrine. After all, this is the Word of God, so what else could be so qualified? First off, many of the commentaries I wrote, I read at focused on the God-breather, God-inspired part of the first section of verse 16. In Greek, the word is theonoustos, which is break down into theo, God, and noustos, breathe. And this is the only incident in the whole Bible where this word is used. Alistair Begg said that theonoustos, when translated as God-inspired, kind of alludes to God inhaling the word. But how would that help us? <clears throat> Alistair continues, saying it should be more along the lines of God exhaling the word to us, for us to take in. Thus, since God is exhaling the word to us, it comes from God, being as such, being holy, much like Jesus touched on in Mark 7.15. For there is nothing outside of a person that is going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, since God is holy, his words, a.k.a. his exhalation, a.k.a. scripture, would have to be pure and inviolate, true and immutable, perfect and inerrant. There is no way we can look at God's word and say, it was wrong, I was right, especially since we ourselves are corrupt and depraved and inherently sinful. As imperfect beings, we can't make something better or more perfect than ourselves. So referring back to Mark 7.15, our words are de facto corrupt, depraved, and inherently sinful. To reinforce this point, Augustine said in one of his sermons, the scriptures are holy, they are truthful, they are blameless. We have no grounds for blaming scripture if we happen to deviate in any way because we haven't understood it. When we do understand it, we are right. But when we are wrong, because we haven't understood it, we leave it in the right. When we have gone wrong, we don't make out scripture to be wrong, but it continues to stand up straight and right so that we may return to it for correction. In relationships term, this is a, it's not you, it's a me situation. Now, when I was in the Marines, I found that there was a vast, vast library of field manuals that basically showed you how to do anything you would possibly have to accomplish. There were manuals on how to clean weapons, how to use weapons, how to set up a camp, where to put the latrine, how far away it had to be, how to survive in various environments, and these I read a lot, and even how to cook for 150, if you can believe that. There is a manual on cooking. I wouldn't recommend you read it. It's not Betty Crocker, let me just say that. The military basically laid out how we were to survive and fight. 
Now, the Bible is the same way. It's God's field manual on how to live, love, and to be saved. Now, for us, using the Bible as a moral compass is a no-brainer. The Bible as the Word of God contains everything that we would need for living in righteousness. By extension, Paul states that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction. Now, we can look at it a different way as well to to hopefully give you more clarification. So for those of you taking notes, you might want to write this down. First off, he says teaching. And in teaching, you can look at as identifying the right doctrine. And then you have reproof, identifying the wrong doctrine. Let me know if I'm going too fast. Then you have correction, fixing the wrong doctrine. And then lastly, you have instruction in righteousness, how to stay on the right doctrine. Now, first off, what is the right doctrine? Where do we find it? Well, in the scriptures, much like Paul said, the benefit for us is that we can look into the New Testament, which unfortunately for Paul and his contemporaries wasn't put together for about another 400, 450 years. For them, they had to refer to the conventional wisdom of the time, which came from the apostles. In Matthew 28, 18 and 20, Jesus passes the torch to them, and from these apostles, they were to pass on the correct doctrine to others. It was only through their credibility of apostleship or association of others with these apostles that the correct doctrine could be forged. To help this along, the books of the New Testament were recorded to spread this proper doctrine with the conclusion being our salvation. And this is our target. Now keep that in mind, the target. Secondly, identifying the wrong doctrine used the same criteria as the right doctrine. Now when I was in the artillery, units of measurement uh, we used for determining the settings of the big guns was called the mill. There were 3,600 mills to 360 degrees. We just had to do things different. I don't know why. A mill translated to one meter of variance for every 1,000 meters of distance. So if you're looking at one mill difference over 1,000 meters, not that bad. You're only talking about this much. But you take that one mill over a distance of 20 kilometers, and you have a 20-meter variation on where the round does hit as opposed to where it's supposed to hit. That now becomes a big deal when you're dealing with our target, which is salvation. A small difference in doctrine may not seem like a lot in the short term, but over the long term, it can mean the difference between death and life in Christ. Now third, fixing the wrong doctrine can save the person from the eternity of torment and death. Back to the artillery, when we see the impact of the round, we will then radio back to the battery, the corrections, dis, you know, over to the left, over to the right, up, back. And so we radio those distances back to them, and they take that and recalculate the direction for the guns with the elevation and the left-right angle. And then they fire it again. 
This continued until the target was hit. So you can also see that these corrections as fixes to the doctrine you've been carrying around, unaware that this was the wrong path that you were on in the first place. Lastly, bringing others to righteousness is everybody's responsibility to the best of their ability. Fortunately, there are those who are trained out there to help those in righteousness, and they are the church pastors and leaders and such. Their job is to help us to attain that proper doctrine so that we can know the right road to travel, referring back to Paul and the appropriateness of Scripture in all aspects of our lives. Scripture also informs us how to build our society using the proper doctrine so that we all have the opportunity to know and learn Christ Jesus and the part he plays in our salvation. This is both elementary and mandatory for building a society that both worships and loves the Lord and each other. This was the marching order that Paul gave to Timothy to give to the people of Thessalonica and Ephesus and wherever else Timothy was sent. In keeping the word etched on your heart and staying true to the message of Scripture, you will never flag or fail, you will never stumble or stall, never deviate or diverge. Stay true to the Scriptures, and you'll be fine. In doing so, you also have all of the tools needed to be right with God, performing good works and helping others along the way. By using these tools to minister to others, that message from Scripture, you will not lead the flock astray from the path that leads to salvation through justification, sanctification, and glorification. The other thing to remember is that the scripture referred to is the Old Testament. Like I said, there were a few bits of what would become the New Testament floating around, like in chronological order, uh, James, Galatians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, Romans, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians, along with some of the Gospels, Matthew followed by Mark, Luke, and Acts. And for those of you theological nerds out there, yes, I am a Matthean prioritist. We don't know how widespread these were, but they were not yet widely acknowledged as scriptural, thus holy. For those of us in the present, the Bible is really God's GPS, telling us where to go and how to get there. Now, it won't tell you to take a right turn into a creek like Michael and Dwight did in the office episode. The road signs kept telling Michael that there was a bridge coming up, but the GPS said to take a right turn, and so Michael put them into the river. The rumor has it the programming was said to have come from a graduate of uh, Ohio State's IT department. <laughs> Keeping that in mind, a lot of the time I find myself shaking my head, seeing how mankind is behaving, and this is one of the things that makes me such a skeptic. It's really laughable though that there's so many people running around and proclaiming we just have to love more, or we need to love everyone, or love fixes all things. And then I turn around and I see the protests over the later cause celebrate turning into a burning block party. I'm beside myself when watching government and national institutions disallow something as elemental as the Ten Commandments from being posted or published or taught in any form where people can see it and live it. At a minimum, 
you have an absolutely priceless guidance about living and treating others. What in the Decalogue would lead people to a life full of evil, depravity, or societal catastrophe? Why are people fighting to have the ideals from the Bible silenced or put away? Is, it learning, the, is learning the values of the Bible really that distasteful? Will it lead to dancing? Recently, one of my kids came to me and told me that she was tired of hearing about all of the anger and protesting and vitriol and division and asked me whether she should stop looking at social media. <laughs> Duh. Who here can say that they don't get burned out looking at Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever social medium they, they frequent? Seeing the same secular messages of hate and division will breed nothing in us but anger, confusion, and depression, but it is also mankind-inspired. So put your phone down and pick up the perennial bestseller. Now, for those of you who are afraid of going into withdrawal symptoms, you can go pull up a Bible app and look at it on your phone. <laughs> in it, you will find peace of mind, love for others, and understanding of what is important, your life salvation. The Bible, tried and true for thousands of years, it's good for what ails you. Lord, we thank you for providing us this book of instruction. We thank you for the efforts of the 30-plus authors that you chose as instruments for producing these 66 books of infallible holiness. We thank you for opening our eyes so that we may learn and experience the abiding joy that comes from knowing your Son and the peace that comes with knowing that through his sacrifice, we have eternal life. May we always seek you out and pursue your word all of the days of our life. In the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, amen.